I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. The state of Tennessee plans to resume capital punishment tonight with the execution of Oscar Franklin Smith by lethal injection. Smith has been on death row for 32 years for the 1989 killings of his estranged wife, Judith Robert Smith, and her teenage sons, Chad and Jason Burnett. This will be the first execution since capital punishment ground to a halt when the pandemic set in back in March of 2020. Today, we'll invite a few local journalists who've been covering the death penalty for years and an attorney who has represented inmates on death row. We'll also hear from organizers who advocate for alternatives to the death penalty. My question as we gather here in the center of Nashville, where are the Christians? Where are the, the conservative Christians who are so loud every day in this building talking about what books children should read in schools and talking about who should marry who, but where are you now when it comes to the lives of our brother who, who just a few days after Easter will be crucified by the state? That's coming up later in the hour. But first, it's Thursday, so you know what that means. It's time for Anna's. That's right. Yes, our digital lead, Anna Gallegos-Cannon, joins us each week to share a roundup of your feedback, which we collect on Twitter at ThisIsNashville, on Instagram at ThisIsNashville underscore WPLN, and at WPLN News on Facebook. Okay, Anna, mm -hmm. last Thursday, we did an episode about natural burial and Larkspur, which is one of just a dozen conservation burial grounds in the country. We invited a death doula in training and a hospital chaplain. But a few listeners pointed out at least one perspective we were missing. That's right. Here's a tweet we got from a listener who goes by exaggerations or, and they wrote, In Jewish tradition, burial is natural. The body is dressed and prepared by community volunteers. And Rabbi Jessica Schimberg tweeted at us, too. So I decided to give her a call yesterday to learn a little bit more about the Jewish tradition when it comes to natural burial. My training as a rabbi included a lot of kind of clinical experience, like hands-on experience with people. Uh, we have to spend time um, in a hospital and, you know, caring for people at end of life. And so knowing the things about kind of the very delicate and beautiful way in which we all transition at the end of life, um, everything that she was talking about really spoke to me. And then, you know, that in connection with this idea of green burial, it's just like all of that is so much. I kept talking to my radio as I was listening. I, you know, it's just such a Jewish way of, quote unquote, doing death. Rabbi Schimberg walked me through the burial process, and it really reminded me of how much care Larkspur's John Christian Pfeiffer takes when returning the body to the earth. When the soul leaves the body, that that's not just a, like, that just happens. It's a slow process. And so, you know, being with the body, washing the body, caring for the body, and wrapping the body in a shroud, um, very much like what was talked about here, we tend to put the body into a very simple like, pine wood box so that we can truly experience that, you know, dust to dust, that returning and that nourishing the soil. 
you know, that reminds me of this cycle, the cycle of life and the cycle of replenishment. And, you know, what are we to do but to continue to feed the earth and nutrients for and become nutrients for future life? Yeah, it really made me think of um, the quote that I think John Christian said about people returning to the roots, mm-hmm. not only like literally, but also kind of metaphorically. And yeah. I think um, what the rabbi said really, really fits with that. Mm-hmm. You know, another episode this week that really struck our listeners was about the Black Opry. Mike Bankhead on Twitter wrote us saying, I've never been into country as it is never spoken to me. But recently, I've been intentionally making an effort to listen more closely to this genre, above all when the artists are, to quote Mickey Guyton, black like me, rooting for at Black Opry and continued success. We got an email from another Mike, actually, and he wrote to us saying, I'm a Gen X white guy, Nashville native, but I really appreciate this coverage. I can give you some other input. Ray Charles, his modern sounds in country and Western music is a great example of how music transcends race. He also pointed out that sexism is something he's noticed in country music, saying that country singer Porter Wagner, who was known as Mr. Grand Ole Opry, used to refer to the woman in the genre as girl singers. Mm. The role of women in country music is definitely something we should look into for a future episode. That would be a great angle to tackle for other genres of music, too. And I have to say, Ray Charles's version of the Wichita Lineman is a classic. Search for it on Spotify or Apple Music. You won't be mad. All right, Anna, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? Yes. One last thing. Did you know we have a weekly newsletter? I mean, I did. Yeah. Well, if you don't subscribe yet, you can sign up at thisisnashville.org, and our newsletter comes out every Friday, and we receive some listener feedback, so we're going to switch things up a little bit in the newsletter, and now it will also be your exclusive look at what shows are coming up next week. Nice. Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos-Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you next week, same time, same place. I'll be here if you are. I will definitely be here. Don't forget to add us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey and let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll turn to the history of capital punishment in our state. Oscar Smith is scheduled to be executed tonight by lethal injection, marking the first execution since before the pandemic began. Stay with us. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Tyler Legrand is a local craftsman who calls himself a wood whisperer. He works out of the garage behind his home, and recently he got a call for a custom job he didn't expect. I did get specs. It was uh, uh, 72 inches, so 6 foot uh, by 30 inches wide and 22 inches deep. You make sure you get the, you know, the prettiest of the wood grain facing out. I'll lay them out like this. And so um, what I'll do is put them on the miter saw now and just cut them to length as they need. And that's the step before we start clamping them and gluing them together. So I got to take 73 and 5 eighths. 
tires again. 73 and 5 eighths plus an inch and 5 eighths. Uh, so uh, I was commissioned to uh, do a coffin for uh, an upcoming execution for Oscar Smith. And I just finished completing the uh, sides for it over the weekend. And today I need to finish completing the lid on it in order to make it fully enclosed. Uh, when they reached out to me, they... I didn't say yes right away, let's put it that way. I normally build uh, anything from uh, chairs, tables, um, swings, gates, uh, I mean anything indoor and outdoor. I like working with a number of different woods, you know, whether it's poplar, ash, uh, cedar being this example here specifically. It's a lot of hard woods that really stain beautifully and, and the wood grain just kind of pops, which you can see on this cedar here. I mean, it is just one of the most beautiful woods and obviously you can smell it a mile away too. So, and it lasts forever outside too. I say this and if you want something to last a while and so um, with this being what it is, you know, longevity is not what it's made for in mind in a sense. The one other thing that I might have to potentially add to it is a cross, which as another big thing to think about on here too, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what religion he is or, you know, if he would want that. So, yeah. Like if I was going to be buried in the ground, this is what I would want. Some kind of cedar for myself. After a two-year gap in Tennessee executions, 72-year-old Oscar Smith is scheduled to die tonight around 6 p.m. His attorneys have said that there's some new DNA evidence that could help his case. But in a written statement this week, Governor Bill Lee simply said after thorough consideration of Smith's request for clemency, he would not be intervening. Oscar Smith was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder for the 1989 killings of his estranged wife, Judith Roberts, and her teenage sons, Chad and Jason Burnett. It was a brutal murder. And just about a year after, a jury sentenced him to death. Now, today, we're not going to get too much into the case itself or the tragic loss of the three victims. Instead, we're going to learn more about our state's history with executions. To help, I'd like to introduce my first guest. Stephen Hale is an award-winning journalist who has covered executions for the Nashville scene. He now works as a criminal defense investigator for AK Investigations. Stephen, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having me. So you've witnessed executions in your reporting over the years. Can you tell us what's going to happen tonight? So uh, Oscar Smith's being executed by lethal injection. So uh, he'll be, and this is one of the things that uh, has stuck with me the most from the executions I witnessed, which is that we talk a lot about, when we talk about executions, we talk about the machinery of capital punishment, but it, it's not machinery, it's people. And so tonight, people who work for the state of Tennessee will kill Oscar Smith and they'll, he'll be on a gurney and, uh, he'll get three, three drugs. There's three, uh, drugs that are used in Tennessee's lethal injection protocol. The first, uh, and there's, I want to choose my words carefully because this is the subject of a lot of litigation, mm -hmm. um, and has been over the years, but the first is midazolam. It's a, a sedative. Um, there's been a lot of debate and litigation about how powerful that drug is, if it's powerful enough to make someone unconscious so that they won't experience what comes next. But 
either way, that's the first drug. The second one is a paralytic. And so the media witnesses who are there, uh, whatever witnesses will be in the room, once that paralytic is is administered, won't be able to see what Mr. Smith is experiencing, if he's experiencing anything, because he'll be unable to move. And the third will stop his heart. You know, this execution is scheduled for 6 p.m., but is that certain? What could happen between now and then? Well, I suppose a number of things. Um, I mean, there have certainly been cases where sort of last-minute legal jockeying occurs. Um, the governor has already said he's not going to intervene in this case, so that doesn't look like that will be happening. Um, but, you know, the, there's, there's uh, I suppose, a number of things that could slow that down. But in general, this the, the execution protocol is, is pretty clearly laid out, and so they try to stick to that as closely as they can. I know you didn't report much on this case, and can you help us understand how did he end up being sentenced to death back in 1990? Um, well, so when he was sentenced to death, the official method of execution would have been uh, electrocution. And, and so he, when he was sentenced to death, that's what he was sentenced to um, for, uh, as you said earlier, the murders of his estranged wife and her two sons. Uh, my understanding is that he's always maintained his innocence for th for those murders. And so we want to be clear about that. I obviously can't weigh in on that, but um, he has maintained that up until this week as he's tried to, to fight this in the courts. Um, but people who were sentenced to death before the state adopted lethal injection now have a choice. They can choose lethal injection or the electric chair. My understanding is that Oscar Smith declined to make a choice. Um, he was still fighting this in the courts. And so the default is now lethal injection. And so he'll be executed by lethal injection. You know, a lot of us, I think it's say, fair to say most of us have never witnessed an execution. I can imagine that it's very jarring and an emotional experience. What has it been like for you? Um, it's, it's a traumatic thing to witness. I witnessed three executions, one lethal injection and two electrocutions. And I, I say it's traumatic not not because I think anyone should shouldn't really pity me for I I volunteered to witness those as a reporter and I thought it was important to bear witness to them so I don't I'm not a victim of that but it, it is there's no other way to put it it's traumatic to watch someone else be killed by other people um, and to do it through a window uh, you know of course <laughs> we're on an audio uh, medium here but you know not much different than this studio is we have a window here mm -hmm. and imagine on the other side of a window is a man on a gurney who is being put to death. That's that's basically what it's like. And, um, you know, for people listening to this, they can imagine that's not a an image that that leaves your mind very quickly or easily. You mentioned that as a journalist, you thought it was important to witness this. Elaborate a little bit more for me. Yeah, I think the the state is killing one of its citizens and if they're going to do that, I and I think I think I feel comfortable speaking for other journalists uh, who witness these with me and who report on this issue. If they're going to do that, the least they can do is let other citizens watch it and not do it. They, you know, it's already a very private thing. This is done in a small room in the back of the prison with a very few witnesses. And, you know, Thankfully, folks like you are covering this today. Other people have reported on it, and the public has a chance to know about it. But they don't go out of their way to make this a very public thing, the state. You know, I think 
Um, and so in order, for, you know, if they're going to kill one of their citizens, I think it's incumbent upon some of us to watch them do it, to watch that it's done the way they say they're going to do it, and to make sure that the public hears what it looks like so that they can decide. You know, there's a lot of debate about capital punishment. And if people are going to debate this issue, they need to know what it really looks like and feels like and sounds like when a person is put to death. You know, as a witness of these executions, as a resident of the state of Tennessee, you know, what do you think we're misunderstanding the public or we just don't know about executions in our state? Uh, well, I think there's a number of things. I mean, I think that one thing that I think is is broadly misunderstood is just there's a lot of misunderstandings about these men on death row. I know that's not exactly your question, but, um, you know, Oscar Smith is the oldest man on Tennessee's death row. This is an old man. It doesn't, I'm not excusing what he may have done or, or even weighing in on that, but a lot of people have an image of Hannibal Lecter. And if they went to death row and, and met any of these people, um, you know, and the men on death row more than once have invited the governor to come meet with them. So this is an opportunity that people have. And I think they would find something different than they're imagining there. The second thing is that we have taken steps to make executions look like medical procedures, particularly when it comes to lethal injection. Here's a gurney. Um, and these medicines are literally medicines. I mean, I'm saying the word medicine. They're, they're medicines that are usually used for some kind of medical procedure to keep someone alive, say. And in this case, they're being used to put someone to death. And going into it, I might have thought, well, this is going to look like I'm watching a surgery or something, or the guy's just going to go to sleep. And it doesn't. It looks like a killing. And I think maybe people misunderstand that uh, because it's called a lethal injection, or there's so many euphemisms used around it. But it's, you know, even the term put to death kind of obscures it a little. It's killing someone. Hmm. And, that's, and it looks like that. And when you see it, that's clear. So a group of activists held an anti-death penalty march this past Sunday which they've done for the past four executions in our state. Reverend Jeannie Alexander was there, and she had some really strong words about the people who participate in executions. Let's listen. We don't think about is that it makes murderers out of people who work for the Department of Correction. We ask that of people who work for that branch of government. Stephen, how have you considered employees who must really be hands-on with these executions? I, I, it's something that I have thought a lot about, especially since witnessing them. And when I was a reporter, I did some stories trying to get my arms around the trauma of the death penalty for the people who are asked to participate it, in it. Um, and I think that is another thing that people can really try to understand is that there's ripple effects of this that go out. Um, I wouldn't dream of trying to speak for victims' families or, or uh, family of the condemned, but they are affected by this. Witnesses are affected by it, and the people who are asked to carry it out are affected by it. And again, it is a hands-on thing. Uh, staff of the Department of Corrections will go to Oscar Smith's uh, holding cell. They'll take him out. They'll bring him. They'll strap him into a gurney. I mean, this is not something that is done from a distance. It's a very hands-on thing, and I, I can't speak for the people who participate in it, but I can only imagine, as traumatic as it was and, and upsetting as it was for me to watch it happen, I can only imagine what it's like to, to take part in it. And another thing to remember is that in a lot of cases, these Department of Corrections staff members will know these men. Mm. Oscar Smith's been on death row for 32 years. Some of, the, some of the guards and corrections officers that work there, they know him. They talk to him. They know him as Oscar. You know, they, he's, not, he's not an inmate 
he's a guy with a name that they know in some cases, I'm sure. And so I can't imagine what that would be like. Have you had conversations with prison staff about executions? You know, I've had some conversations with former prison staff. I think a lot of the people who work there currently, they're not in a position where they're able to talk or, or willing to for, for whatever reason. Um, but I have had conversations with people who have been there for executions. And, um, you know, again, I, I hesitate to say too much just because I wouldn't want to uh, presume to speak for them. But, you know, people I've talked to have even just spoken about the sort of pall that they feel over the prison on these days when this happens. And I think that even if they are philosophically maybe agree with the death penalty or, or whatnot, there's no escaping the the sort of brute facts of what it's being done. And uh, I, I can only imagine what it's like for them. And they have to go home after that, just like everyone else. Um, and so, yeah, I think what the Reverend was saying in that audio is, is important to consider, for sure. In your past reporting, have you been able to talk to victims' families after the execution? I have not after. Um, so, so tonight, you know, and I, I don't know what victims' families will be present. They're allowed to come if they want. Um, and they are given a choice to speak to the media afterwards uh, at the press conference. So I have spoken to victims' families in the run-up to executions before, and certainly based on my reporting and based on other reporting, great reporting that's been done on this issue, there are victims' families who feel any number of ways about this. Some of them are have been waiting, and they really want to see the person who killed their loved ones executed. Others are opposed to the death penalty. Others have even developed relationships with this person and forgiven them. I mean, there's any story you can think of is out there. And I think it's it's definitely important for us not to speak about or think about victims' families uh, as a monolith because they're all, they run the spectrum. Um, and again, I can't speak for them, but I've, I've heard from them and I've seen their accounts elsewhere. And I know that they're kind of across the board in terms of how they feel about the death penalty uh, and executions. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about capital punishment in Tennessee as the state prepares to carry out its first execution since 2020 tonight with the execution of Oscar Smith. Tweet us your questions at This Is Nashville. I'd like to welcome my next guest. Brad McLean is an attorney who has gotten several people off of death row over the course of his career. Brad, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oscar Smith has been on death row for 32 years, and that's a long time. Brad, what's the logic behind keeping someone on death row for that length of time? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure there's any logic to it. Um, these cases take an extraordinarily long time to go through the courts. And I think what we have now is a backlog of old cases. Um, and um, and that the state is now um, pursuing to execution. Um, it's interesting that um, while we have uh, a number of execution dates scheduled for this year, I mean, I think there are five scheduled for this year, um, uh, including uh, the one scheduled for tonight uh, for Oscar Smith, um, that while we have that many execution dates scheduled this year, We've had very few uh, new death sentences in Tennessee. Over the past 10 years, there have only been six new cases where, where new death sentences have been imposed and only one in the last two or three years. So, um, and you compare that with, uh, for example, 
1990 when Oscar Smith was was sentenced to death. Um, and that year alone, you had 10 death sentences imposed on 10 different defendants in 10 different cases. Uh, and interestingly, if we look at those cases, uh, in seven of those 10 cases, because of problems with the trial uh, or problems with the case, uh, the death sentences were set aside. So we only have um, three cases uh, out of from that year, 1990, in which death sentences have been sustained. One of those defendants um, died on death row. Uh, and, and we have two who have pending uh, death sentences. One is Oscar Smith and the other is Harold Wayne Nichols, who is scheduled for execution in a few months. So um, sort of the, um, it's kind of weird. It's, it's really kind of a, an irony that while the death penalty is going out of existence in Tennessee because very few prosecutors are pursuing the death sentence, very few uh, juries are imposing death sentences anymore. Uh, we have this backlog of cases, you know, average about 30 years old. Uh, in, in, um, in Mr. Smith's case, it's, his, his case is 32 years old. We had a, an execution, uh, I think it was uh, two years ago where the case was 36 years old, I think it was. Um, you have these old cases um, involving defendants uh, who are themselves very old. Oscar Smith, is, as uh, Steve mentioned, is 72 years old. Um, the state is trying to execute. And as time goes on, the rationale behind the death penalty uh, diminishes to the point of zero. Um, if you look at the cases out of the US Supreme Court, which have upheld the death sentence, uh, death penalty, uh, there are two basic rationales for the death penalty. One is deterrence. And um, there are no studies um, that demonstrate that it has any deterrent effect whatsoever. And the other is retribution. And that's sort of a vague term, um, but this idea that you know somebody deserves what they what they've done uh, in in the form of an execution, um, that those two um, reasons or rationales diminish over time. If if you don't execute somebody for thirty two years after their trial, then um, the death penalty doesn't have much of of a deterrent effect, if any. It never did, but it certainly has virtually no deterrent effect after that length of time. And the interest in retribution also diminishes, especially when people have lived for so long after their trial and they've changed, they change over time. So um, there's not really a rationale for executing people after this length of time. And it's particularly um, ironic that we're executing so many people in a time when the death sentence, uh, death penalty is really dying on the vine. To kind of refer to that, there was a nine-year break in capital punishment until the state resumed executions in 2018. What happened there? Well, I, I think that, um, number one, as I said before, it takes a long time for these cases to work their way through the system. But, um, but there were a number of execution dates that were set during that period of time, and then they were stayed um, primarily because of litigation over the lethal injection protocol, by, over the method of, of execution. Uh, and there were a number of cases that were litigated on that issue, both in federal court and state court, uh, until finally, um, just a few years ago, um, the um, Tennessee's current uh, lethal injection protocol was upheld by, by the courts. 
so that caused a, a substantial delay of close to 10 years. And then, um, and then there were uh, a number of execution dates that were scheduled that, that were then delayed because of COVID. So now that we've gotten past the intense period of COVID, um, the court has rescheduled execution dates. So, so I think those are the two main reasons why there was that lapse of executions during that close to 10 year period. You know, what's been happening since 2018? Obviously, we had a few years of a break during the pandemic. But Brad, I'm curious, like the state delivering more death sentences? No, that's the point. The state is not delivering more death sentences. As I mentioned before, over the last 10 years, there have only been six new death sentences in the state of Tennessee. There was one new death sentence last year. I don't think there were any the year before, the year before that. Um, and so, as I said, the you know um, prosecutors are not pursuing death sentences in the few cases that go to trial. Juries are not imposing death sentences for the most part. So over the last 10 years, we've had six new death sentences. Interestingly, in the middle section of Tennessee, um, you know, the, the middle third of Tennessee that includes Davidson County and, and the surrounding counties, um, there was not a single new death sentence from uh, the year 2001 until last year. So we went 20 years in the middle section of Tennessee without any new death sentences at all. And then finally, there was one new death sentence, I think it was last year in Dixon County, uh, and that's on appeal. But um, and then other parts of the state uh, that, you know, the number of death sentences have, have also drastically declined. So I think the public can get a misperception when they um, read about or hear about the number of executions that are scheduled for this year uh, in perhaps thinking that the machinery of death is is going full tilt and it's not. Um, executions are going forward on these very, very uh, old cases, but there aren't any new cases or very few new cases coming into the system. Um, to just give you an idea, I mean, the um, uh, among those people who have been executed in Tennessee um, in the modern era, that's we reinstated the death sentence in 1977. Among those uh, who have been executed, and I think there have been 13 uh, so far, the average length of time from their trial, from when they were sentenced to death to uh, when they're actually executed is 28 years. Um, and the average age is somewhere around 60 years old. And now we have, um, in the case of Oscar Smith, for example, someone who's 72 years old. And that average is going to increase as more executions take place because these are all very old cases. So for example, um, we have a case set for execution uh, in August of someone who's been on death row for 33 years. Mm. Uh, we have someone else who's set for execution in, um, in October who's been on death row for 29 years. And another person who's uh, set for execution in December who's been on death row for 33 years. So as I said, I mean, these are very, very old cases. Um, we have twice yeah. as many people on death row who have died for reasons other than execution than we've executed. So yeah. um, that's that I hope answers the question. It, it does. And I want to thank you for being here. That's longtime attorney Brad McLean. He was joined by journalist and criminal investigator Stephen Hale. Thank you both for joining us. 
We're taking a quick break. When we come back, we'll take a look at how Tennessee's history and capital punishment policies and practices compare to those of other states. Do you have questions about the death penalty in Tennessee? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Riverbend Maximum Security Prison currently holds all of Tennessee's men on death row. It's also the location where prisoners were executed when their time comes. This past Sunday, about 50 people met in a parking lot across the street. There was music and prayer. There was also a display, 14 portraits of Christ painted by men on death row. The paintings represented the Stations of the Cross, or the timeline of Jesus' last day, from conviction to being placed in a tomb. The gathering looked a lot like a small outdoor church, but it wasn't any ordinary Easter service. The crowd was gathered to march from the prison to War Memorial Plaza in downtown Nashville, carrying signs and banners opposing the death penalty. Our producer, Tasha A.F. Lemley, was there as an opening service of March for Mercy wrapped up and the march began. Common hymnal, they kick off the march with a piece they say is about the dignity of life, what they love and what they fight for. Co-writer Shane Claiborne is an activist and author and one of the organizers for today's march. As we walk, even if people say mean things to us, we return it with love. Amen? Like this is, we, we're not going to mirror anything ugly that's said to us, so we'll keep that spirit of love and nonviolence. We're going to stay very carefully on the right side. We're going to go down, make a big U-turn, and then the march will all start together, and we're going to go for it, all right? Riverbend is quiet from the outside. There are a few guards near the road who leave protesters alone, and everyone moves on. It's going to be a long day. We pass through industrial zones, go through the nations, across TSU, and up Jefferson Street to Rosa Parks. The weather is cool, which is helpful, and there's only a little bit of rain. This is the fourth walk like this, all organized just before a scheduled execution. And this week, after more than a two-year pause, Oscar Smith is scheduled to die. And marchers believe there has to be another way. I actually know some of the people who are scheduled to be executed. This is Pai Masavisut's first March for Mercy. He used to take classes inside death row as part of his studies at Vanderbilt. We develop such good relationships with the people inside and we exchange our perspective. And yeah, they mean a lot to us and we mean a lot to them. I grew more frustrated when um, the religion that I belong to, which is Christianity, sometimes support or become a main driver of these punishments. That's a sentiment Shane shares. He says the Bible Belt is the death belt, and the death penalty would not stand a chance in America if it weren't for the support of Christians. And it being Easter, almost all of these governors and legislators, you know, are in church today celebrating the, the defeat of death, <laughs> the empty tomb. And then it's... Uh, so apparent that we've we've missed the whole point of it sometimes as we 
if you're going to carry out an execution right after Easter, you might not understand the point of the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, I think, right? We know Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So it feels like a, a very powerful way to celebrate Easter together by saying the resurrection was not just a one-time event 2,000 years ago, but something that should reorient the whole way we think about violence and execution and what mercy really, really requires of us, you know. After more than three hours of walking, we get to War Memorial Plaza, where there's more prayer, music, and meditation on the Stations of the Cross. There's also calls for change. Community organizer Justin Jones, who's running for State House, he says the place we're standing is a place memorializing death and violence. My question as we here, gather here in the center of Nashville, where are the Christians? Where are the, the conservative Christians who are so loud every day in this building talking about what books children should read in schools and talking about who should marry who, but where are you now when it comes to the lives of our brother who, who just a few days after Easter will be crucified by the state? Every time you crucify and harm the least of these, you are reenacting crucifixion. You are reenacting that public display of violence. And for what? And for what? There is no justice in state-sanctioned violence. There is no healing in this. Joining us now is Reverend Stacy Rector, Director of Tennesseans for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. Stacy, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you, Khalil. I'm glad to be here today. Thank you for being with us. So tell me, how has your faith and work as a minister shaped the way you think about the death penalty? Well, the, my faith is really what led me to the issue. Um, I was born and raised in Tennessee, and during that period, we weren't executing at all. So it wasn't something I gave much thought to. But um, when I went to seminary, I was in Georgia, and Georgia was actively executing during that period of time in the early 90s. And I began to really have to wrestle with um, my understanding of who Jesus is and, and the life he calls us to and his own, his own death. Um, and I just could not, um, I just could not um, square that uh, my, my life as a disciple of Jesus with, with the death penalty. Um, and so that's really what moved me into this work. Obviously, as I've grown more in the work, I've learned a whole lot more about the policy of the death penalty, apart from one's moral or philosophical or biblical um, questions about it. As a policy, the death penalty is is just a complete failure for our state. And so I've really been able to find common ground, though I have strong feelings about the death penalty and its morality and its um, and and where I stand as a Christian on it. Others don't see it that way all the time. Right. And so what I have found is even when we don't see eye to eye from our faith perspective or from our moral perspective, we are finding much more common ground on the fact that this policy is simply failing us. You know, what are, I'm interested in, in the faith, uh, the ability not to see people eye to eye on that. You know, what, mm -hmm. 
what in your arguments with other Christians and victims rights organizers, mm -hmm. what are they saying in favor of the death penalty? Um, well, there are, there are certainly Christian denominations who have positions where they believe the death penalty is biblically justified. They use Levitical law um, in that justification. They use um, text from Paul and Romans um, for that justification. Um, and uh, so, so, you know, there are texts, obviously, you know, everybody can find texts that, <laughs> that maybe support their position. Um, you know, so, so there definitely are scriptures um, that you could, could look at and make that argument. Um, I look, try to look at scripture in, as a whole and really through the lens of Jesus. And for me, that is how I interpret the whole of scripture. And so that gives me a certain, a certain position on the death penalty. Um, but it is really fascinating to me that as I have taught to people, um, and again, people who, who philosophically or biblically just disagree with me and, and say that you can justify the death penalty biblically, where I find that common ground is as they learn more about the way the death penalty is administered um, today, the, the, the unfair application, the arbitrary application, the, the extreme cost uh, to the state, to taxpayers, dollars we're not spending on things that actually promote public safety and actually support victims of violence. Um, when they consider the, the real risk of executing innocent people, you know, when they begin to consider everything in its totality, what I discover is they don't see the death penalty of today as being able to be done in a, a way that's very just. And so that's where I find more common ground as opposed to whether we can sit down and, and you know, lob scriptures at each other about, <laughs> about whether this is biblically justifiable or not. I find at this point, it more helpful to say, where can we find the common ground and agree that what we're doing now, the death penalty system of today is a failure. It doesn't make us safer. It risks executing innocent people. It's unfairly applied. And it puts the surviving family members of murder victims through decades of legal process. And I would say added trauma I want to talk um, to you about that. I want to yeah, talk about yeah. the trauma. There's a lot of trauma involved here and all around for victims, families, and for the folks on death row. Tell me about that. Well, again, and you've heard others say this uh, earlier in the program that I can certainly not speak for people who have lost loved ones um, to murder for those uh, on death row or their families and for what that trauma has been like. What I can do is tell you what I have been told by, by people who have been through the process, um, who've experienced it. Um, both those who support the death penalty in terms of the, the victim's family members and those who don't. What I hear over and over again is that this protracted system that goes on for decades traps people in a trauma space it traps them in that moment of their worst pain, their worst outrage, their worst brokenness, and they cannot get out of it because they are constantly being brought back to court. They're constantly being reliving it in the media. You know, dates are being set, dates are being uh, 
stayed, you know, this goes on and on and on and on. And um, so what I hear from both sides, people might have different opinions about what we should do about that. But what I hear is that this process we have is so damaging. And I would argue it's, it's damaging, obviously, for those on death row to go through it and for their families to be going through this all these years and years and years. However, what we also know is our system is, is not working properly and that it is taking 30 plus years sometimes to actually address issues of innocence. And that's a, and that's <laughs> you know, a, we have had people in process for, for 30 years. Be in. I who, understand. You know, I yeah. Am. So, so it is a traumatic thing that we don't have to go through because we have alternatives. My next guest is a, it's a pretty good sharp on grasp on the national perspective. Liliana Segura writes about the death penalty for in, the intercept and she lives here in Nashville. Liliana, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So can you tell me quickly, like, how does, where does Tennessee stack up against other states that use capital punishment? You know, it's interesting. At first glance, because we have these scheduled executions, because Tennessee has uh, carried out a number of executions after this long pause, it would seem like Tennessee is disproportionately sort of devoted to the death penalty in a way that other states are not. And, and that's really not the case, actually. Historically, especially compared to other states in the South, Tennessee was never actually a leader when it came to carrying out the death penalty. Um, and in fact, where we are now, I mean, Brad spoke about this a little bit. But um, we're in this kind of really bizarre space when it comes to uh, the death penalty in this country, uh, widely speaking. You know, year after year after year, the data all over the country, including in, in active death penalty states like Texas, shows that there are fewer and fewer and fewer new death sentences being imposed. Jurors are increasingly, um, you know, opting for other sentences aside from the death penalty. Uh, and, and, and there are also fewer and fewer executions being carried out. And yet you see these moments, like in Tennessee, like in a state I think about a lot uh, during Easter uh, season, um, Arkansas, which in 2017 decided to try to make use of its particular drug, midazolam, to carry out a whole bunch of executions over Holy Week. Um, I, I, I did reporting there. You see these moments, including in the federal system, which I reported on a lot between 2020 and 2021. After years, something like 16 years, uh, the federal uh, system, which hadn't carried out an execution in a long, long time, decided that it was going to carry out what ended up being 13 executions over a six months period. So there's this weird contradiction where you see this death penalty on the decline and yet these moments where there's just this frenzy to kill um, in, in states including Tennessee. So it's, um, it's pretty ugly, uh, but the sort of long view is that this is something that really is on its way out. Um, I did want to add, just picking up on what Stephen was sharing and what you were discussing about those who are tasked with killing um, the people on death row, um, somebody I was able to meet in Terre Haute, Indiana, which is where they carry out the federal um, executions, I had a chance to meet a man named Jerry Givens. Um, Jerry Givens was for years the executioner in the state of Virginia. He carried out 62 executions um, in Virginia and, um, and afterwards uh, came to a point where 
he was haunted by that work where he became actually a dedicated anti-death penalty activist who would speak out wherever he could, including in Terre Haute in advance of the federal executions to say, this isn't the way, this, this essentially you know, impacted my life in ways that, that haunt me to this day. Um, Jerry Givens unfortunately died of COVID in, in, in the spring of 2020, but I did want to share that. Um, he was a really important voice um, in the broader movement. You know, lethal injection is the default method for executions. And Stephen mentioned earlier that the the state gives those convicted before 1999 the choice to die by electric chair. And in recent years, a lot of people, several people, have selected the electric chair, citing fears that the drugs may cause them more pain. Liliana, can you tell us about the complications of lethal injection? Yeah, and Stephen did touch on this. This has been the source of a ton of litigation going back years, uh, uh, more than a decade, really, um, uh, when it comes to lethal injection specifically. Um, without getting too much into the weedy legal history, essentially what's happened is since, you know, since the beginning, since the death penalty has been carried out, we've always been in search of some better method, some more humane method, something that might not look so much like this thing that we're doing. And that was true with the advent of the electric chair. That was even true with hanging. That was true, you know, and so we, we get to this point where lethal injection was invented by a pathologist in Oklahoma who very explicitly designed it to make it look humane, but more for the benefit of those viewing it. Um, unfortunately, you know, the drugs that he chose um, did have the appearance, did make uh, an execution look a little more palatable, but there was actually never a whole lot of evidence that it was reliably um, rendering a person insensate so that they wouldn't feel the torturous effects of the drugs that be were being used to kill them. And so that's led to a lot of litigation and a situation where a number of people who are condemned have chosen alternatives, including um, electrocution. And I think a lot of Americans do not um, understand that that's something that's happening right now um, in our so-called modern era of the death penalty. That is Liliana Segura, reporter. She was joined by Reverend Stacy Rector. Thank you both for being with us today. I wish we had more time. Thanks to everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, it's Earth Day, so we're going to be talking about green space. What is it exactly, and why is it important? Tune in. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A. F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Masterminds behind our music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Kelly Gleason. And you know, the conversation does not end here. We want to hear your thoughts about today's episode. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. And please fill out our survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.